Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. With schools and daycare closed during the pandemic, working parents were always going to have extra trouble. As the data have rolled in, the full effects on mental health, career progression, and widening gender divides are becoming clear. And think of all the minutes you've spent trying to eke out the very last of the ketchup or the peanut butter. Don't worry, material science is here to help. We look at a super slippery surface that will help you get the most out of your toothpaste tube. But first... Mr. Zuma, could I ask you to stand, please? It took more than two decades to begin, and after just one day, it was adjourned until July. Jacob Zuma, a former South African president, was in court last week for the first major hearing of his corruption trial involving an arms deal from the 1990s. Mr. Zuma was president from 2009 until 2018, until he was forced to resign after a vote of no confidence. He led the African National Congress, or ANC party, which was itself involved in multiple corruption scandals. You have followed the charges that have been put to you now from the indictment, am I correct? Yes. Mr. Zuma faces 18 counts of racketeering, corruption, fraud, tax evasion, and money laundering. Prosecutors leveled the accusation that he had taken some 700 bribes. How do you plead to them? I plead not guilty. But corruption in South Africa goes far beyond one man and one administration. The case against Jacob Zuma is nearly as old as post-apartheid South Africa. John McDermott is The Economist's chief Africa correspondent and is based in South Africa. The charges relate to a $2.5 billion deal to buy European military kit to upgrade South Africa's armed forces way back in 1999 when Zuma was deputy president. He is accused of accepting an annual bribe from the French arms company Thales in exchange for protecting the firm from an investigation into that deal. Both Zuma and Talas deny any wrongdoing. So then how does Mr. Zuma respond to these charges then, besides simply denying them? Mr. Zuma has spent more than two decades saying that the charges are false and they're all part of a conspiracy. The supposed brains behind this conspiracy have changed over time. Initially, it was kind of internal enemies within the ANC, chiefly Tabo Mbeki, his former nemesis. But it's also been kind of foreign instigators as well. For many, many years, his efforts were successful. But finally, he has run out of road and he's currently facing his days in court. 
But it must be said that as much as this is the big case against him, he's been chased with allegations of corruption in a bunch of ways down the years. That's right. When he was president from 2009 to 2018, his reign became synonymous with what's called state capture, the wholesale looting of government departments and state-owned enterprises. In parallel to this trial, there is a long-running commission into state capture, which is led by a senior judge here in South Africa. And Mr. Zuma, as well as a lot of his alleged cronies, are at the forefront of this inquiry. So while the court case that he's currently involved in dates back to the late 1990s, it's also quite possible that we could see subsequent prosecutions related to his time as president. And the sort of corruption that's being alleged here, that isn't restricted just to the echelons that include Mr. Zuma, right? It's sort of throughout government. Corruption in South Africa is systemic, and it involves not just senior politicians and departments of state and state-owned enterprises, but it seeps right down into the very lowest levels of government. The towns and cities that, in theory, should collect people's bins and should ensure that they have clean water and good power supply. And that really, for most South Africans, is where they see the day-to-day consequences of corruption. And what are those consequences? What does that corruption look like in the towns and cities you mentioned? To be chief Africa correspondent of The Economist may sound like a glamorous job, but a couple of months ago, I went to a town called Harrismith in the municipality of Maluti Apufong. It's about three hours south of Johannesburg. And I found myself standing knee-deep in effluent, just next to a sewage plant. And this was because the waste disposal system in this town had completely broken down. There's about 350,000 people there. They have no regular clean water. Their rubbish is not collected. The lights are rarely on. And in much of the town, the place just stinks because of the sewage problems. And it's because of the fact that this local government is run by ANC politicians who, it is alleged, are much more interested in their own personal gain than actually providing basic public services for the people who live there. And how are the people in these neglected places reacting to to the corruption? South Africans are fed up with the state of their local services and their main way of showing it is by protesting. In 2018 and 2019, there were record numbers of of riots and people hitting the streets just because they're so angry at at the state of local delivery. Those numbers fell last year because of the pandemic, but there's no sign at all that things are getting better. Some South Africans are, however, taking slightly more constructive action. When I was in Maluti Apofung, I met with an organization called Water Heroes, which is led by three men from the town, two black men, Sam Twala and Willie Shabalala, and a burly Afrikaner farmer named Petrus van Eden. And together, they decided to do things for themselves, to fix the water pipes, to collect the rubbish, to make sure power supplies are working. And this citizen's activism is becoming more common across the country. But that kind of activism must surely just be a a stopgap measure. I mean, can can this kind of thing fill all the holes that the, the government is leaving? No, it can't. There can't be a replacement for the dysfunctional South African state. Even this wonderful trio whom I met, Water Heroes, 
they cleaned up the place and they got water running again in 2020. But when I went, they were really despondent because the municipality had essentially forced them to stop. They went so far as to say these guys were sabotaging the town. And that just shows that even if you have people who want to do the best for their community, they want to fix potholes and bridge racial divides, they don't actually have the legal authority to do so. It's a reminder that ultimately towns and cities are run by politicians. And until South Africans put more democratic pressure on the ruling African National Congress, the party of Jacob Zuma, then there is little incentive for those politicians to change. Well, the hope had been that the the era of corruption would go out with with Zuma himself. The new president, Cyril Ramaphosa, campaigned on on a platform of clearing out the corruption. I mean, what's your take on that? How's he doing? Cyril Ramaphosa, who became president after Zuma in 2018, has done some good things. He's got a new national prosecutor. He's cleaned up the police. He's even imposed some discipline on the African National Congress, most recently by ensuring the suspension of one of Zuma's allies, Ace Mahashuli, as Secretary General of the party. However, as what I found in Maluti Apofung shows, corruption, cronyism, patronage in South Africa is so deep, so systemic, and it's so related to the raison d'etre of the ANC, which is to actually take control over the state, that you can't just fix all of the problems related to corruption by changing a few heads of a few institutions. You really do have to change the nature of the ANC itself. And that's difficult because Cyril Ramaphosa is not just president of South Africa. He's president of the ANC and he needs internal party support if he's going to stay in power. So the tragedy, as with much of modern democratic South Africa, is that far too often the needs of the African National Congress are put ahead of the needs of the country. John, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. 
And even as more and more schools open back up, much of the impact may stick around. This past year has been particularly tough for parents juggling paid work with childcare. It's disproportionately affected their, their health and well-being and also their careers. Sasha Nauta is The Economist's public policy editor. And for some, the consequences could last well beyond the pandemic. And it won't just affect them, but also their families, their employers, and indeed the economy. And as we've talked about before, that has to do with juggling full-time work and, and childcare with schools closed? Yes. School closures and childcare centre closures really are at the heart of this. At the start of the pandemic, when they all suddenly closed, and young children in particular were suddenly home full-time. And most kids in America and in Europe now grow up in dual-income households where both parents work. One in five grows up with a single parent. So you can imagine doing two at the same time proved impossible for many. Here in Britain, by April, so just a month into lockdown, couples were each doing on average three and a half extra hours of childcare and nearly two hours of dreaded homeschooling a day. All of this has very measurable impacts on their mental health. The American Psychological Association found that parents, both fathers and mothers, were significantly more likely than non-parents to be diagnosed with a mental health disorder during the pandemic. And we've seen across countries increased levels of things like loneliness, stress, etc. And you found a particularly novel way to, to track this frustration. <laughs> Yes, I've spent a significant amount of time on Mumsnet, which is a British parenting forum. And during the pandemic, it was a place where a lot of mothers went to air their grievances and get advice about the joys of homeschooling. Mumsnet allows swearing. They think it's it's healthy for people to be able to air all of their frustrations. And what they notice is that with each announcement around school closures here in Britain, the swearometer, which counts the number of obscenities in, in post, spiked measurably. In January of this year, at the swearing peak, if you will, over seven in ten Mumsnetters said that they felt that they were failing their employers and they were also failing their kids. And nine in ten concluded that basically that working from home whilst looking after children was simply impossible. But that's on Mumsnet. I presume dads have had a hard time as well. Dads have absolutely had a hard time. In fact, in America, the Stress in America survey found that fathers of young kids were the group that stress drank, so drank alcohol to cope with stress, more than any other group, so more than essential workers. So fathers definitely suffered as well, but the bulk of the extra work has nevertheless fallen on women, on mothers. And actually, as the pandemic has progressed, that shared workload has more and more been pushed towards mothers. So I think it's safe to say that mothers have suffered disproportionately. And given that disproportionate share, how has that impacted their career paths? Career-wise, women, particularly mothers of young children, have been more likely to lose their jobs and they have dropped out of the labour force altogether in greater numbers. For example, in America, by January of this year, one and a half million fewer mothers were in paid work than in the year before. That's a, that's a fall of 8%. That's more than, more than other groups. And if you look at, for example, academics, which tend to have quite a quick way of looking at how productive they are by looking at, for example, research papers they were able to submit, you see in general an impact on 
academics with young kids being less productive during the pandemic, but particularly mothers of young children. How much of of all these trends do you think will go into reverse once the pandemic really starts to recede? Well, we know that women tend to take longer to come back into work once they've dropped out, you know, lost their jobs or or left the workforce than men. So I'm not at all optimistic that there would just be a quick bounce back. But in a way, the more interesting question I think to speculate on is how this past year will affect the way parents divvy up responsibility, the so-called gender norms. And here, some early research is showing quite concerning evidence of a potential so-called conservative shift. You know, we've seen this in the past when faced with a big sort of existential threat, like a, a terrorist attack or a war or economic collapse, they sort of revert to traditional roles. And a study from France actually has shown that towards the end of the first lockdown, you saw that men and women were more likely than before COVID to say that a woman's job is basically to look after the family. And while that is still up in the air then, what what, what would you like to see happen? What changes should come out of, of this tumultuous time? Well, one thing that this year has been undeniably good for is the acknowledgement that working parents have children. That sounds really silly, but we know from before the pandemic that women in particular often felt the need to hide the fact that they had kids. And obviously this year of Zoom and peering into each other's living rooms has has changed that and hopefully for the better. And it's destigmatized, at least temporarily, working from home, flexible hours, all these things, all these new freedoms that really could benefit all workers, but particularly working parents, for the good. And, you know, I should point out here, we are mostly here talking about, of course, the white-collar variety, the types of jobs that you can do remotely if need be. So that, at least, is is our silver lining here, at least for those, those jobs that, that can be done from home. I think that that there are some risks that we should be aware of. And one of them is that Zoom kind of becomes an excuse for everything. So Zoom becomes an excuse to not fix childcare because you can now work from home whilst minding your children. And that actually mothers might feel pressure to work from home because they can. And as a consequence, the office could become much more male-dominated again, sort of back to the 70s. Now, that might sound a little bit like scaremongering, and maybe it is. An awful lot will depend on how employers facilitate the transition to the next way of working, right? And also how governments, of course, build the infrastructure around childcare, etc. And so, as I say, it will really be up to employers and governments to be thoughtful about having the right structures and support in place so that all working parents can combine being a parent with being in the workforce in the long term. Sasha, thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure, Jason. Ah, this mangled tube of toothpaste. There's always a way you can squeeze out just one last little bit. But the struggle doesn't end in the bathroom. Think of the ketchup bottle. Or the peanut butter jar. Those trace amounts, abandoned after you've scraped and squeezed and squirted all you can. Hmm. Pennies on the dollar of your pastes, putties, creams, conditioners, syrups and sauces. Wasted. 
But what if there were another way? Colgate-Palmolive, a huge American consumer goods giant, well, they've taken up an invention by a pair of experts in super slippery surfaces to produce a toothpaste tube that delivers the last drop. Paul Markilly is The Economist's innovation editor. It's called Elixir, and it comes in uh, three varieties at the moment. All are packaged in plastic tubes, and they can be emptied entirely with ease. Elixir has gone on sale in Europe, but uh, there's no decision yet whether it's going to be sold elsewhere. How, then, does it deliver the last drop so easily? Well, the invention comes from a collaboration between Kripa Varanasi, an MIT professor and his then-PhD student, Dave Smith, in 2012, they set up a company called Liquid Glide to commercialise this invention of theirs. And it's their first big breakthrough into the consumer market. And how it works is by imposing a microscopically textured pattern on the inner surface of a bottle or a tube, and then applying a suitable liquid which fills in the gaps. And that creates a surface over which the gooey substances will slide very easily. The liquid can be made from the same materials that are in the bottle or the tube, and that helps prevent contamination. But what really caught a lot of people's imagination at the time of their invention was a demonstration of how they could use it to completely empty a ketchup bottle with great ease without even shaking it vigorously. So is that to say we will at last be rid of our ketchup emptying problems too? I'm afraid not. So far, the ketchup makers have yet to warm to the idea And that's perhaps because they're not too worried about people not being able to empty their bottles. But the health and beauty industry, that's a different case. Their products tend to be pricier, consumers a bit more picky, and uh, they've been quite keen. Liquid Guide hasn't given up on food, though, and they're eyeing some products, particularly mayonnaise, hummus, sour cream and cream cheese. Now, they think they can be put into squeezy bottles, too. It sounds like a technology that, that has application beyond toothpaste and ketchup anyway. It does in a number of areas, in particular in the manufacturing industries that make some of these products because food and health products can stick inside equipment. Mibel Group, a Swiss producer of healthcare and beauty products, they're already using this idea to prevent material getting stuck inside the pipes and vessels of the manufacturing equipment. Now, a lot of stuff gets wasted when it's time to clean production equipment. It gets washed away or has to be disposed of, especially... And also, non-stick packaging should help a lot with recycling. Tubes of toothpaste, for instance, at the moment are rarely recycled. That's not only because they might have some stuff left inside them, but also because they're often made with a laminate of plastic and an aluminium foil. And recyclers really don't like to deal with mixed materials because it's tough to recycle. Thanks very much for joining us, Paul. It's a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. 